You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are here today with another installment in our harvest management series. Last year, Season three, I believe it was, the fall and winter of 2020 and 2021, we had probably 16 episodes where we connected with various state and federal biologists from across North America to talk about the history and and sort of transition of harvest management throughout, uh, well, mainly throughout the U.S., but we covered some of the entire North American aspect of things. We haven't produced any of those yet here in season five, fall and winter of 21-22, this is the first of those. We're going to probably have a couple, maybe three of these episodes. And this is the topic that we have here today on, on this episode and the forthcoming episodes is partly in response to some listener comments. I mentioned these on some some earlier episodes where we've had people reach out and say, hey, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Atlantic Flyway, waterfowl ecology, waterfowl management. And that aligned nicely with some of the way we were thinking about what our next installment of this particular series might be. So today we're going to welcome in two guests to help us with a discussion about harvest regulations, specifically in the, in the Atlantic Flyway. Those of, those of you out there that hunt in the Atlantic Flyway or may have some exposure to harvest regulations across multiple flyways, including the Atlantic Flyway, will know that the way things are occurring now in the Atlantic Flyway is a little bit different, a little bit unique, and has been over the past few years. That's uh, in particular a, a multi-stock approach 
to setting harvest regulations. And so we brought in the people that have been working on this for a number of years to help us with it. And so with this, with that, I'll formally introduce and welcome in our guest here. First, from the Connecticut Department of Energy Environmental Protection, Dr. Min Wong. Min, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you very much, Mike. Happy to be here. And from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Dr. Pat Devers. Pat, welcome in. Hey, thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. I, I do greatly appreciate the time that each of you are devoting to this episode, sharing your time with us here on the podcast and with our listeners and helping to answer some of the questions that I suspect people have. Uh, people are probably a bit curious about some of the changes that have been made to harvest management processes in the Atlantic Flyway. I think there are probably some of our listeners that have no clue about some of the differences in harvest regulations in the Atlantic Flyway versus some of the other flyways. And this is an opportunity to cover a lot of that information. I hope people find it interesting. There's probably going to be several episodes that we break this conversation into. Before we get into the details of the conversation, I want to give each of you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us about yourself personally, professionally. This is important, I think, because we always talk about on the podcast how we bring in the experts the people that know the information best. And that involves, that depends upon us bringing in people that have professional credentials or professionally qualified, have been working in this field for decades in most cases. Each of you fall into those categories. So this is the point at which I'll ask you to introduce yourself. And men, let's start with you. Tell us about yourself. I'm Min Wong. I'm with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Uh, I've been here for the last 20 years. I head up our migratory uh, bird program, and so waterfowl certainly fall under my purview, along with most of the other uh, migratory birds that, that make their home in Connecticut. Prior to this, I spent five years hunting and working uh, in the great state of Washington, and prior to that, I worked for two years in the state of Florida, managing habitats um, for the Florida Game Commission. Been in the profession for going on almost 30 years. Um, I've worked with waterfowl for basically 25 of those. And um, yeah, I, I still love what I do, which I think is, is really important. And from a personal standpoint, I've been waterfowl hunting for the last 30 some odd years. I used to big game hunt, not so much anymore here in Connecticut, uh, but I do live to waterfowl hunt. And yeah, I guess that's it. Man, it's great to to, to speak with you while preparing for this episode, series of episodes, you and I talked and, and I think I might have started the conversation by saying, I don't know that you and I have ever met one another. I don't know that we've ever spoken with one another. I have certainly heard your name, seen your name, all in good in good ways, I, I'll have to add. <laughs> uh, for many years, you, you certainly have a, a prominent name and a prominent presence in the Atlantic Flyway harvest management process. And so it's a real treat for me to be able to connect with you and, 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 and kind of pick your brain and, and hear from you about some of these, uh, some of these harvest management topics that we're going to discuss. Pat, I have known you and have interacted with you and have met you and talked to you many times. And I've always enjoyed those interactions. Uh, we used to interact and, and work together a lot more than we do now. So this in its own way is, is pretty cool for me to be able to reconnect with you and talk about some of these issues. But Dr. Pat Devers, tell us about yourself for our listeners that may not know you. Uh, my current position, I'm the Atlantic Flyway Representative for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Division of Migratory Bird Management. I've been in this position, I think, officially almost a year. It was January of last year, I believe I 
officially became the, the flyway representative. Before that, I served as the, the chief of the branch of assessment and decision support within the Division of Migratory Bird Management. Uh, I was in there for four years, and that branch up really provides the technical analytical support um, for migratory bird regulations and other issues around conservation of migratory birds. And then prior to that, when you and I worked together on a lot of things, is back when I was with the Black Duck Joint Venture, when I served as our uh, Black Duck Specialist for the division. Um, originally from Colorado, Colorado, uh, grew up there most of my life and enjoyed just running around outdoors, a lifelong passion for the outdoors and for animals. Um, went to Colorado State for my undergrad and then went on to uh uh, University of Arizona. At that time, I was doing mostly uh, a mammal work until I ended up at Virginia Tech, where I worked on rough grouse and and was fortunate to to move into the waterfowl arena. Uh, thank you for those introductions, guys. It is great to connect with you. Let's move right into the discussion here because we have a lot to cover. And I will provide a bit of an orientation here, reminding folks that, as I said at the outset, this is the latest installment in our series on harvest management in North America. If you did not catch any of those 16 episodes from last year, from season three, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. You can actually find those. If you wanted a shortcut to those, you can go to our Ducks Unlimited podcast website, dupodcast.org, I believe is the, is the website there. And I believe we have a specific link on that site where you click on it, it will take you to an archive where each of those episodes is listed. So that's, we spoke with a number of guests, covered a number of topics. We couldn't cover everything in one year. So that's why we're kind of branching out again with, with this particular episode. We spoke about, as I mentioned, the history the, the evolution of harvest management decisions. We covered the, the formation, the early years of, of AHM. We covered some of the technical aspects of decision-making through the Adaptive Harvest Management uh, Program. We talked about the point system. We talked about a whole bunch of things. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there's a lot of information there that I think some of, some of which will be really valuable for you to understand as we get into this conversation. Uh, you know, I, I guess what I'll do here so that all of what we talk about here doesn't de- today doesn't depend upon those past 16 episodes. I'll provide a bit of a high-level overview of, of harvest management, kind of as, as is going to be important for understanding what we're going to talk about here. And, and men and, and Pat, once I get finished with this, you, I'll have you jump in and provide any clarification that be, may be necessary. But I think at a very high level, it's important for people, most of us that are listening to this and familiar with waterfowl harvest are going to know this. And under, under our current systems, we have, we have different regulatory alternatives. And most people will be familiar with those alternatives as either a closed season, a restrictive season, a moderate season, or a liberal season. There are, uh, the, the, there are different aspects of those regulatory alternatives, season length, and bag limits. Within each of those alternatives, you have a specific season length and bag limit. What a lot of people don't realize, and I know this from talking with people here recently within Ducks Unlimited, is the season length and bag limits within, let's say, a liberal season, liberal package, differ across the flyways. For example, in the Pacific Flyway, a liberal season corresponds to 107 days a seven-day total bag limit, seven of which can be mallards, but only two of those can be hen mallards. In the Mississippi Flyway, a liberal season corresponds to 60 days, six total ducks, four of which can be mallards, two of which can be hen mallards. 
Then in the Atlantic Flyway, liberal season corresponds to 60 days, six total ducks. But the mallard restrictions or the mallard bag limits, I should say, are a little bit different nowadays. So the other thing that that is important to know about how those regulatory alternatives are selected is that there are different stocks of ducks that are used for basing or for selecting a certain kind of optimal regulatory decision is the way I think Man and, and Pat will tell us uh, across each of those flyways. In the, in the Pacific flyway, those regulatory alternatives are selected based on the, on the status of western mallards. In the Central and Mississippi flyway, it's based on the status of mid-continent mallards and, and prairie pond counts along with that. And then in the Atlantic flyway, this is kind of getting to the, the primary topic, Nowadays, that regulatory alternative is based on a multi-stock management approach, and that's that's new. And and I, there are probably a lot of folks that may not even know about it, but those that do know about it may not understand all of what goes into it. And I kind of fall into this category to some extent. But anyway, that's sort of a high-level view. It's important for people to realize there are different different processes in place and different populations of ducks that are important for determining regulatory decisions across each of these different flyways. So, Pat, did I capture that correctly? What did I, um, there are a lot of details there, but from a very high level, did I do a decent job capturing that? I think you covered it well. And so, with in an interest of not diving into weedy, weedy, weedy stuff, I, that hits the big, big picture. Um, if you want, I'd be happy to add a clarification that by stock, we can mean species or, or, or populations, right? So, we've got the midcontinent mallard population is still the same species, but with multi-stock, we're talking four different species. No, that that's a good point there, Pat. So, yeah, I, I just kind of threw around that term sort of loosely when I said the midcontinent uh, mallard or, or different stock. So, what is it that we're actually talking about? Like, how do I guess the other way to say it, Pat, would be how do Western mallards differ from Eastern mallards? Why do we separate those? What's the importance of separating those as individual stocks from a harvest management perspective? Throughout the discussion, we might talk about stocks and or populations and, and loosely kind of use those terms interchangeably. But when we're we're talking about the Western mallard stock from the from the midcontinent stock of mallards from the eastern mallard stock you know those are the same species um, they're not subspecies or any different at that level but what we do know about them is that um, the birds that are harvested say in the pacific flyway we know where they're derived from we know where they breed some of them are coming from the mid-continent region and then we know a lot of them are coming out of alaska and kind of the pacific flyway portion of um of Canada, and so we we know where where they breed, but then they tend to have this fidelity or or just a habit of returning back to the Pacific Flyway. Whereas the midcontinent stock of mallards, they breed almost primarily in the midcontinent prairie pothole region, but also up into Canada. But we can, based on banding of those birds and re, and getting hunter recovery of those birds, we can tie them from certain banding areas to certain flyways during the wintering season. And so we, we delineate them spatially and call that a stock. Eastern mallards, similar thing, is they're mostly breeding from Ontario over into the Atlantic provinces and then down through the northeast states and mid-Atlantic of the Atlantic flyway. Um, and so they have a tendency to breed in that area and then migrate into the Atlantic flyway. Of course, some of those birds, particularly from Ontario will make it into 
the Mississippi Flyway, but the preponderance of them will come into the Atlantic Flyway. So again, just spatially based on band returns, we can kind of link breeding areas to certain flyways, and we refer to those as stocks or populations. When we get into this later on, talking about the multi-stock adaptive harvest management framework in the Atlantic Flyway, now we're actually talking about four the populations of four different species. Um, so that's where we're kind of kind of interchanging between what a stock is and what a population is. I think as we get into this conversation, we will certainly see some examples of why the delineation of those different stocks of mallards, as, as will will dominate at least part of this early conversation, why that's important from a harvest standpoint, and certainly why hunters will be interested in that. Uh, and and so I, I guess to get right into that. As I was doing some of my reading and research prior to this episode, I learned a few things, learned a lot. A lot of There's a lot that I did not know and will always be a lot that I do not know about harvest management. I, I don't operate in that uh, in that in that sphere, uh, we don't have a seat at the management harvest management table, uh, but there are a lot of reports out there available for people to read. The adaptive harvest management report is produced annually, and it contains a, a, a wealth of information for those interested in this in actually what goes on with waterfowl harvest management. I did not realize while going back through some of those reports that at one time regulatory alternatives were set across all flyways using this based on mid-continent mallards. In other words, we, we didn't have, we didn't recognize Western mallards. We didn't recognize Eastern mallards as individual stocks or even the mid-continent mallard, mid mallards as separate stocks. We looked at the status of all mallards and used that to determine what regulatory alter, what the, what regulations would be in a given year. The regulations in terms of season length and bag limit still differed among flyway uh, at, at that time, but we had kind of lumped all mallards together as the basis for that. Um, and so, man, I, I guess I'll direct this question to you. You can pass it to Pat if you'd like to, or Pat can follow up. But my question as I begin to read that report is, all right, well, so back in 1995, 96, when AHM got its start, that was the situation. We looked at all mallards lumped together and then set our our regulations, our, our overall framework regulations for a given year. At what point did the harvest management community really begin to dig into this idea of multiple stocks of mallards as the basis for setting those annual harvest regulations? I mean, I think that started back in the 80s, um, at least with mallards. Um, I think when we get to the multi-stock aspect of the Atlantic flyway, we'll go back in history, even back into the mid-50s um, when there were proposals floated around for separate management units within the Atlantic Flyway, just again, based on the derivation of, of the ducks that were being harvested by our hunters. But yeah, back in the early 80s, you know, when the, when the prairie started experiencing, you know, a pretty severe drought, there was a lot of, a lot of consternation in the Atlantic Flyway, particularly in the northern states, um, because the band return uh, information and the harvest derivation information really did indicate that even back then, um, no more than 20 or so percent of the mallards that were being harvested in the Atlantic Flyway were coming from a traditional survey area. So from the, the Canadian prairies and, and uh, the prairies in the Dakotas and, and into Montana. And so as harvest restrictions were being imposed um, because of declining mallard and pintail populations in the early and mid-80s, um, the Atlantic Flyway states wanted to you know, somewhat be divorced from that situation because 
of the derivation of the birds that, you know, the Atlanta Flyway hunters were harvesting, which were really coming from those areas to the east of the traditional survey area that up until then, we really didn't have survey information for, but we did have a lot of banding data for. Um, So we were banding birds, um, and we knew that those birds that were banded in the east, by and large, were being harvested in the east um, in a much greater proportion than birds that were banded in the mid-continent. And so I think that was when it really became the impetus of the Atlantic Flyway to, again, try to divorce our regulations from those that were governing uh, the mid-continent. What type of information and analyses are required to to take it to take that idea from concept to application? It's not you, you can't just look at that simple band recovery data because that you already kind of had that data as the basis for your observations about knowing where the you know, where the, the harvest where those birds that are harvested in the Atlantic Flyway are derived from a, a breeding perspective. So it's not just that simple, right? From a harvest management perspective, what was that? What was the process like by which the Atlantic Flyway was able to to sort of parse out eastern mallard, that eastern mallard stock as a basis for its early sort of unique harvest regulation setting process? Right. So again, back back uh, to the mid '80s, you know, there was a, a northeast unit proposed, and that that unit was going to be the five um, states, the five northern and coastal states of, of New England, excluding Connecticut. Um, there was a proposal that was also floated to include Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania into that unit. It was an experimental unit in 1985 for those five states. Um, a further expansion was rejected, and ultimately that unit was not continued as an operational unit because of lack of breeding survey data. Um, so we had the banding data, but we did not have any type of operational survey in the Northeast um, and into Eastern Canada. And so that really led to the development um, of the what we call now the Atlantic Flyway Breeding Waterfowl Survey, which is a ground-based plot survey that occurs from Virginia all the way up into up uh, through New England. Um, and that started in 1989. And so that that survey was developed in response to the need for um, survey data, breeding breeding uh, duck duck data. Um, at the same time, and predominantly for the counting of black ducks, and I think Pat can correct me if I'm wrong, the Canadian Wildlife Service in 1990 uh, implemented their current helicopter plot survey, and that's helicopter aerial surveys of five kilometer by five kilometer plots spread out across southern Canada and into the boreal. And so with those two surveys in place, we were able to at least start down the road of developing um, population models for mallards um, that would then enable us to move away from our reliance upon mid-continent stocks. Okay, so that yeah, that makes sense. So you you can you have to know, you have to break out that population, understand the demographics of it right, in order to incorporate it into that formal harvest management process. And we talked about that with uh, Jim Nichols and also Scott Boomer a bit, just from a, a big picture pers- perspective in terms of, you know, how does our understanding of population dynamics and systems, you know, the, the, the state of the system, as we like to call it, but uh, think about the number of prairie ponds, how all those things kind of come into play and how they allow us to figure out what the 
optimal regulatory alternative is going to be given that understanding of the population. So, yeah, that makes sense. That so we had to know something about that entire eastern mallard population before really moving to a harvest management process. One thing that's probably worth noting here, man, and, and, and Pat, it's going to come up later on, is that in the mid-90s, if my reading is correct, uh, and you might have mentioned this, man, but at that time, eastern mallards were on an upward trajectory based on the data that we had available, right? Yes, they were. And I think I even saw some reference to it was a pretty steeply increasing trend, maybe dating back to the 1960s. Does that sound right? Yes. We don't have to get into the weeds of everything that goes into the how we use that that new population model that, that we talked about or the understanding of mallard demographics uh, in, in the East um, in, in terms of how we incorporate that into all the harvest management processes. We, uh, we can just kind of skip over that for now. But the, the end point here is that when we kind of parsed out that Eastern mallard stock, it enabled the Atlantic Flyway to begin setting harvest regulations primarily based on that mallard on the status of that mallard stock. And and so, man, take us take us through those early years when that was when that was occurring. You know, any anytime there's a transition, a change in the way we do we do something related to especially related to harvest management, there's typically some experimentation, maybe there's some trial runs. What was all of that like? And you know, how much how challenging? What were you part of those discussions? I would have to do the math here. That was prob. Did that predate your time in the Atlantic Flyway? It probably did, didn't it? It did. Yep. So, so then, based on what you've heard, then kind of tell us what those early early years were like. How challenging <laughs> was that transition? Sure. Yeah, I came into uh, I came into the Atlantic Flyway uh, in 2002, and so just just as eastern mallards were being becoming operational, eastern mallard AHM was becoming operational. Um, you know, I think from the Atlantic Flyway standpoint, overall, it was it was a relief. I think that we were, you know, now divorcing ourselves from from the prairies. We need to remember that less than twenty percent, even this is back in into the seventies, less than twenty percent of the mallard harvest in the Atlantic Flyway was coming from the prairies. Um, as time has gone on, as the eastern mallard population started growing, it's it's been declining for the last twenty or so years. But even so. Um, the contribution of the mid-continent to the mallard harvest in the Atlantic Flyway has merely been decreasing. Right now, it's down to less than 7%. Um, so we truly are not deriving mallards from the mid-continent region. We're, we're deriving them from the states of the Atlantic Flyway and, and then Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes. So that being said, I think that you know the, the adoption of AHM in general across all four flyways was a learning curve and a learning process, you know, through the mid '90s into the 2000s. It has served us well. It will continue to serve us well because it's, you know, as your podcast, your previous podcasts have indicated, it's a completely objective and transparent way of, you know, developing the best decision for for harvest management. But you know, I think as we'll talk later uh, in the Atlantic Flyway with eastern mallards, eastern ma- mallards were never the species to drive overall duck regs for the Atlantic Flyway for a number of different reasons. Um, however, at the time, mallards were the best surrogate, particularly for the Atlantic Flyway to, again, divorce, divorce itself from the regs that were governing the prairies. Um, you know, it comes back a little bit to what Pat was saying about different stocks is that, you know, these birds are, you know, dealing with a lot of different 
uh, environmental conditions. Um, you know, the birds here in the east, they're not being born in the prairies. You know, they're being born in totally different habitats. They're dealing with a, a different suite of environmental pressures. And so it just makes sense from not only an ecological standpoint, but then when you throw harvest in um, to deal with these different stocks in different manners. And so the uh, eastern mallard, eastern mallard AHM became fully operational. When was was it? Do y'all remember the year on that? I, I don't have that here handy. I believe we started using eastern mallards in kind of a preliminary manner in the year 2000. And then I believe in 2002, it became the formal decision framework for setting the general duck season in, in our flyway. Okay, so so early 2000s as a good sort of time stamp there. At, at that point, then, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that like we saw in the in the mid-continent, the adaptive harvest management process was working well. It was objective, transparent, began, it was useful for setting those regulations in a way that people could see and, and things were moving along. I, I'll ask you guys reasonably well, any early struggles with Eastern Mallard AHM or, or was it sort of business as usual there for a number of years? I, I guess, man, since you were around there, I'll direct this one to you. Definitely business as usual. You know, we were just chugging along liberal seasons every year, um, no real changes. Um, you know, we would just be squabbling over, you know, bag limits for, for the, all the other species that fall under the general duck framework. For for a while there, everything was, was going easy peasy. You know, man, but that, that brings up a really good point and it ties into the stock discussion we've been having is that you said, you know, it, it started off working really well, our, our AHM frameworks do, um, but then there were still issues regarding all the other species or stocks. Um, and that's something that's made the Atlantic Flyway a little a little bit different um, than the others maybe. Again, that they're deriving their harvest from birds that are, are breeding in eastern Canada and it's really a different, fairly different composition of ducks that um, they're they're hunting and getting from, you know, they're coming out of eastern Canada and northeast states, uh, you know, wood ducks and green winged teals, ring neck ducks. Um, and so Using the eastern mallards to set the general framework starts off really well, but there's been this discussion about you know the the birds the Atlantic Flyway hunters harvest. Where do they come from? Which birds are they? Going all the way back, as Minna said, to the 1950s, leading to proposals for the Northeast Flyway Unit, things like that, um, that we're still wrestling with um, from the as we put eastern mallard AHM into place. You know, kind of carries through the history of waterfowl harvest management in Atlantic Flyway states, even to up into the the multi-stock AHM framework. Man, you mentioned something a little while ago in the conversation that I want to go back to. You said, if I remember correctly, that you know mallards had never really driven harvest regulations in the Atlantic Flyway. And I guess I wanted, I guess I wanted you to expand on that. What exactly did you mean when you when you said that? I think what I meant, um, well, I know what I meant, <laughs> was that I think, you know, in the eyes of the waterfowl managers um, in the Atlantic Flyway, and this goes all the way back into the mid-50s, I guess, um, they have never felt that mallards were the sole or should be the sole driver of general duck regulations in our flyway. Um, you know, when you look at the Atlantic Flyway from north to south, there's a huge diversity of the species that are available to our hunters. and you know, the weather conditions and the traditions of, of waterfowling um, up and down our flyway. And so 
to have a species that you know doesn't truly represent most of the habitats um, or the other species for that matter in its demographics and ecology. Um, you know, to drive the the general duck regulations, I think has always been a bit dissatisfying. Um, however, as we were talking earlier, um, you know, the the initiation of Eastern Mallard AHM certainly was a success in a number of different reasons. Um, you know, it did divorce the Atlantic Flyway from the Mid-Continent regulations. Um, it definitely accounted for that stock of mallards that was basically only being harvested in the Atlantic Flyway. There was very little um, harvest of, of Atlantic Eastern mallards into the Mississippi Flyway. Um, and obviously, being an AHM framework, it put all of our duck setting regulations into that adaptive harvest management framework. Um, but the main thing it didn't do was really account for the diversity of duck species and harvest that, that occurs in our flyway. And so um, as Eastern Mallard AHM continued, I think that we, we realized that um, it was not the, you know, the answer for our flyway. Just to add to what Min was saying, I think um, with the Midcontinent Mallard AHM framework, we have we have good data and good reason to believe that the health and status or, or abundance of Midcontinent Mallards is is reflective of the other species that breed in in the Midcontinent region and the Prairie Pothole region. Um, in addition, um, you know, the mallard is the the um, most abundant or the most heavily harvested bird in that region. And so we feel real confident that um, based on the, the status of mid-continent mallards, we can set general frameworks that um, afford opportunity on other species while providing them with, um, you know, protection to ensure their long-term viability. You know, it, there's a couple species we have extra concern over, pintails and scop and canvasback. But in general, the mid-continent mallard provides a good representative of, of the status of ducks in the mid-continent region. But as Men was saying, um, going back to the earliest days of the Atlantic Flyway, there's never been that consensus that one single species provides that same role. Um, and that's because we are harvesting a variety of different species up and down the flyway, kind of, and their importance in different parts of the flyway, going from the northeast to the mid-Atlantic to the southeast changes, and, and not one species represents that that same or that entire gradient. I mean, I think in early days, people said, well, maybe it should be the black duck that we use, but, you know, obviously there was concerns there. It didn't really cover the whole entire flyway, and we didn't have as much information. We weren't really competent in status, so that that wasn't a good <clears throat> a good alternative for setting regulations either. And, but we were also stuck with, you need to have a certain amount of data. And clearly we had more data on, on mallards and black ducks than we did on other species. So in some ways um, it seemed to work in the mid-continent region, region. So why not use the same approach in the Northeast? And as Min says, that achieved some of our goals. Um, we want to not have the Atlantic flyway hunters exposed to um, Changes in regulations due to prairie conditions, dry conditions, when they're getting their birds from um, eastern U.S. that that doesn't have that wet dry cycle. Um, so they, they they didn't want to be penalized when their birds are doing well because things might have been dry or poor in the mid-continent region. Um, it does still provide an objective way to set the general framework. But even with those two things being very successful, 
we still had this long running issue of what stocks actually represent the harvest up and down the flyway. Um, so yeah, just point out kind of the slight difference between eastern mallards can play for the Atlantic flyway versus what they can play for the mid-continent region. At this point of the conversation, we've you know if we're thinking about it sort of chronolo- chronologically, we're, we are working towards a discussion about multi-stock management in the Atlantic Flyway and, and how it operates. At this point in the conversation, we have Eastern Mallard AHM in place, but and it's rocking along. Everything's going well the first few years of it. Somewhere along the way, to kind of do a little foreshadowing here, of course, not, not too revealing because people that are familiar with this issue know that we're no longer using Eastern Mallard AHM or Eastern Mallard as the basis of AHM. Something changed along the way. And that change is that that triggered a um, a redirection of the adaptive harvest management process or the basis for it in the Atlantic Flyway. And of course, that that change, that thing that happened, is going to be some continued, well, some declines in the eastern mallard population. We'll pick up our next episode with that particular part of the conversation. Uh, we're going to talk a little about the mallard decline. We're not going to get into a lot of the details of the causes for it because some of that's still being investigated. But I think it's important to to at least talk about that. And then we'll transition to the, or we'll get into the discussion about multi-stock management, how it came about, what it is, and what it means for current adaptive harvest management and harvest regulations in the Atlantic flyways. So, man, with that, we'll wrap this one up. Thank you for joining us here today. You're very welcome. My pleasure. And Pat, same to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Min Wong with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection and Dr. Pat Devers with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We greatly appreciate their time and, and spending it with us here. We always thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the wonderful job he does on these podcasts, editing them and getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time, sharing it with us, and for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists conservationists. with the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. 
Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside.